guy and hadn't been around in a while. And I was like, man, this mf -er better call my name, man. You better call my name. And, uh, and he called me at least. And, and it wasn't down to the 12 right away. They were down selecting, but slowly but surely. And then he was like, man, you better get a new chair. You better get new straps. You better keep working hard. And uh, don't make me uh, don't make me regret, you know, calling your name or whatever. I said, no worries, coach. I got you. And I'll never call you an mf -er again. <laughs> Awesome. So, Will, you're from Chicago, right? That's right. Grew up in Chicago. Okay. And um, so you ended up, I think I read you went to Illinois, correct? And did you play, did you get into wheelchair basketball at Illinois? Because you haven't been in a wheelchair your whole life, right? Correct. Yeah. So I ended up getting shot when I was 18. Um, had gone down a, uh, a bad path, a wrong path when I was uh, younger, grew up in a tough part of the city of Chicago. So when, when people say you're from Chicago, I'm like, yeah. And they're like, well, Schaumburg. And I'm like, no, not Schaumburg. I'm from, from the city. And, uh, and anyway, kind of blue collar, lower income sort of environment and whatnot. And, uh, ended up joining a gang and, uh, doing a lot of things that happened in, in that sort of context. So a year after I graduated from high school, I ended up getting shot and, um, and basically for the next couple of years, I was in a, in a pretty uh, dark place from a, a mental health and depression perspective. So just trying to deal with my disability in a variety of different ways. And so for the first year, I basically kind of tucked myself away and hid because I was really embarrassed, number one, of being in the chair um, because I never knew anyone who had adjusted to being in a chair because I didn't know anyone in a chair. So I basically thought that that was going to be you know, uh, a terrible existence for myself. And I was also embarrassed about how I ended up in the chair, you know, making terrible decisions, not necessarily taking the advice of other people who had made it through the circumstances, you know, that, that I'd been living in. And, uh, and so I ended up having to go back to rehab within my first uh, year. And, um, and basically my condition was called uh, being stuck in extension. And that's basically a, a fancy way of saying I was so tight that I couldn't really bend. So like I laid around for so long, I couldn't bend at my hips. I couldn't bend my lower back or my knees. And I was basically going around the hospital on a, a gurney, pushing myself around on my stomach because I'd gotten so tight and they had to basically break those adhesions. And, um, and so I'd gotten through physical rehab the second time, a very brutal and uh, painful experience. And uh, I told myself, well, I'm no longer going to feel sorry for myself. So now I'm, I'm going to make sure that I don't stay in and hide away. I'm going to go out. Um, the truth is I never really had accepted my situation yet. So when I went out, I was drinking and partying and doing a bunch of things uh, to kind of mask my pain and, uh, and ended up going down basically the same path and, uh, and ended up almost getting locked up. And, uh, and I had a doctor's appointment after a, a very close near miss with, uh, with getting locked up. And uh, I told my doctor, who I had a real cool relationship with, what had happened. And she was just like laying into me, like, what the hell are you doing? You're going to end up in jail in that wheelchair. Um, you need to straighten yourself out, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, well, what am I supposed to do? Like, 
I'm in a chair. I've got shot. That's why I'm in a chair. And, you know, I don't really have alternatives. People from here don't, don't really have it. She said, you're the only person in this rehab who's actually uh, got your high school diploma. So why don't you give junior college a try and, um, and, you know, let me know what you think. And look, if you don't like it after a semester, then you could quit, but don't assume that you're not going to be good at it and that you can't do it. So, you know, buddy of mine took me to the junior college and we kind of checked it out. What would it take to get in and all of that? And luckily they had low standards. So I got in and, uh, and right around the same time, I had some other people who were trying to convince me to play wheelchair basketball. I was like, man, I don't know, man, like wheelchair and basketball, like those words don't necessarily feel like they go together again. Like I didn't have any concept or idea whatsoever uh, about wheelchair sports just because it wasn't mainstream. It's still not mainstream enough today. More people know about it, but um, it's still not uh, mainstream enough. But anyway, they're just badgering me, you know, big, tall dude in a chair and, uh, and whatnot. And so obviously they thought that I could help them out. So after them badgering me, some dude agreed to pick me up at my mom's place and uh, take me out to the practice. And literally the first time that I was out there on the court was the first time I quote unquote felt normal in my chair. And so, you know, just working up a sweat, competing, talking smack, whatever, um, felt like, okay, I found something that's really, really good for me. And so right around the same time, those two things were happening where I had uh, checked junior college out and, uh, and uh, checked basketball out and, you know, things were beginning to kind of come together. And um, so that first season I was playing for the rehab Institute of Chicago, a lot of large rehab hospitals, they have wheelchair basketball programs. And uh, it was a December tournament in Evanston, Illinois. And uh, the U of I team was there because they, they played both collegiate programs as well as community programs. And uh, the coach heard about me. He saw me and uh, he, he came over and he uh, showed an interest. He kind of asked some questions and, and knew that I was doing my thing, going to junior college and whatnot. And uh, it was like one of the first times that, you know, someone showed that much interest in me for academics, you know, like. So he started inviting me down for a, a campus visit, talked to me about getting into U of I. We both thought that that might be a stretch, <laughs> but uh, we talked about what the what the process uh, might look like, and um, and it was crazy, man. Like up to that point, I'd never set a world record in my life, and uh, and with with that coach, I, I set my first world record. Wow. What what was that world record? So he, he told me, listen, well, um, here's how you fill out an application. You should take, uh, you should take your ACT, you fill out the application. And literally, uh, as soon as I filled out the application, like within days, uh, world record time, I got my rejection notice that there was no way that I was getting into UI. <laughs> but, but this is what started the journey, right? So I finished that, uh, I finished that season couple uh couple several weeks later we finished uh, our semester and literally like um i'd gotten rejected from illinois but we decided that i would transfer down to the junior college in champaign so like that friday that i finished my finals of junior college i literally got on an amtrak and basically had my couple of bags going down uh to champaign and that was like a, a literal 
metaphor for like a, a big transition in my life. And then that Monday I was signed up for an interim session of summer school because we knew that I needed to kind of accelerate getting my hours and, and whatnot. But that was, that was really what prompted my transition to get down to uh, Champaign. And then it would take basically that summer and the fall before I got into Illinois for uh, full-time education. And Will, what was your previous experience with basketball? Did you play uh, in school, in high school, or is this something yeah. that was totally new to you? So I played mostly organized baseball, you know, so like Little League, travel baseball, and then uh, high school baseball. But, uh, but I always just played pickup ball in high school. So like I was, I was a, a rare um, showing at my high school being, you know, some white kid. Uh, so let's just say that my, my basketball skills couldn't necessarily contend with my contemporaries there in high school, but we had some really good, uh, pickup games, uh, out back of the school, but no, I didn't, I didn't make the high school team, but had always, you know, through, through growing up playing, playing baseball, always kind of had an affinity for team sports and, and whatnot. And, um, you know, the, the seated game is, is, uh, something that you adapt to, but, the vast majority of it, uh, the adapting is because of the, the wheelchair, not because of the rules or, or anything like that. Well, and I know just on, on the on that aspect, I know when my dad went to um, the Olympic campus or whatever in Colorado, and they had everyone play wheelchair basketball with some of the some of the guys who are on the team. He was like, it was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. He was like, I he was like, I couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. He's like, I could not do it. And that's the adapting a little bit that you were just talking about, which is, you don't think about it, really, which is crazy. Well, it's really interesting. A, a book just came out. It's called Wheels of Courage, and it, it chronicles the inception of wheelchair basketball in Veterans Administration Hospitals. And obviously, at that time when it first started, there weren't enough teams for them to play against other people in chairs. So they do these barnstorming tours playing, you know, the Globetrotters and other able-bodied teams and they would just destroy them, you know, like just imagine you never navigate around in a wheelchair. So you're figuring out how does it move? How does it do all this stuff? And then uh, being asked uh, to participate in a game, right, with people who know what they're doing. It's cruel and unusual punishment, but we love doing it every single time. <laughs> but how long was the learning curve to figure out how to navigate in a wheelchair? Because, I mean, you're 18 years old. And you're suddenly your life is basically flipped upside down, and you have to figure out how how am I going to navigate life now in, in the physical realm in a wheelchair? Let me pause one second, guys. I have a a dog disturbing my door. Hold on. If I don't let him in, it's going to happen all day. Sure. So I don't know if you want to ask again, or I could just go into it. I, well, you can go into it. We'll, we'll edit it in. Okay. So, so the adjustment to a wheelchair um, for the purposes of getting around in everyday use wasn't uh, necessarily very long. I mean, when when you're in rehab hospital, there basically that's that's part of your uh, rehab program is that they're making sure that you can safely get around in the chair. Uh, now I'll tell you that the, the difference is, uh, 
the chairs they give you, you know, they've got like, um, they've got like push handles, armrests, you know, they're usually bigger than you need. They've got anti-tip bars in the back. So they pretty much foolproof them for you. Um, if I compare that chair to like the chair that I push around in now is uh, like night and day difference as far as the sleek design and all of that. Um, as it relates to getting used to a basketball chair, like one of the one of the major differences in wheelchair basketball versus able-bodied basketball might be obvious, but um, the what we call chair skills. Um, but I don't think people understand how intentional you have to be about developing chair skills in order to become more than functional in the game, but to become elite in the game. So, you know, really understanding the, the mechanics, the maneuverability, and doing a variety of drills that are a combination of, you know, strength and conditioning and, and maneuverability. Um, once a week we would, while I was at Illinois, once a week we would have a session called chair skills and it's basically like a circuit and, uh, just absolutely destroys, uh, your body, your hands, your arms and all of that, uh, especially when the season's starting. But by the time the season's ending, like you're just ready to press 40 minutes a game, as many games as you play in the day or the weekend. And, um, but, but the point is you have to be really intentional about, understanding the chair and, and here's a, a nuanced point for you guys like you have to take that into account in the context of there's no two disabilities that are identical right so you know i have a an l2 incomplete injury so basically your spine is set up your cervical area which is your neck your thoracic area which is your upper torso lumbar which is your lower torso and then sacral so depending on where in your spinal cord you get your injury, that means it from below that injury is the amount of impairment that you're going to have. So some people might have a spinal cord injury at their lower chest. Some people might have it in their mid-abs. Some people might have it lower like me. And then in the game, we also have people who are amputees or who have had, you know, hip and knee and ankle issues and things. So what I can do in my chair based on my amount of function and what chair skills I'm going to be able to do and need to practice might be slightly different than what someone else can do with a higher level injury. So not only do you uh, have to be intentional about learning the chair skills and, and honing those, you also have to be um, cognizant and adapt those to your level of function, which is really unique to the person. So for, um, so you got in. You you went to Illinois and you and you played wheelchair basketball there. And then, how did you get involved with the Paralympic team? Because um, you've gone to two two Paralympics, right? Right. And right. And then I have a follow up question on because I know Oscar Pistorius was the big the big um, Paralympian who made the Paralympics really jump out. And um, I just I'm I'm kind of curious to know. Like what your first Olympic experience was like, and I I think it was two thousand, correct? And then yep. two thousand twelve, when Pistorius was obviously had made Paralympics, like put on the map, basically really made them huge. Yeah, I mean my my journey into the Paralympics, you know, the part of my rationale for being willing to um, go the junior college route beyond Chicago, down in Champaign, was, 
you know, through my research of, of understanding Illinois' history and the adaptive sport movement, uh, Illinois' um, ability to produce Paralympians, it's not the only place that does it, obviously, but it's it's one of those meccas in the U.S. where they're pumping out, you know, great, not just students, but athletes, as well as people who can have a, a positive impact on the disability rights movement and the community and, and so on and so forth. So I, I was consciously taking the longer path to a four-year institution because I knew that getting to Illinois was going to give me the best well-rounded uh, environment that, that I needed um, and probably cost more money. But, um, but, uh, but anyway, like being, being at one of the 12 to 14 institutions at the time that had a collegiate wheelchair basketball program, you end up having the opportunity to, to train at the most, you know, professional level. It's an amateur sort of sport, but, you know, as far as the high performance training that goes into it. And, um, and so anyway, it, it's like by being there, I'm, becoming more visible by being there. I'm transforming the most quickly by being there. I'm maturing the most quickly, so on and so forth. Um, so essentially in 97, I got my first invite and, and keep in mind. So I, I went down there summer of 95. Uh, I'd started playing in summer of 94 in Chicago. I'd gotten shot in summer of 92 or, you know, spring of 92. So some pretty big changes over that period of time. Um, but by being there training six days a week and not just training basketball, but cross training and doing a lot of other things really kind of accelerated my readiness. And I kind of have a good combination of frame, but also disability level. And there's a whole other conversation I could have with you guys on classification system of wheelchair basketball. All of those things combined to give me an advantage. Plus, when I, when I got named to the team in 97, um, there was still time to prepare me for 2000. So we had basically a, a, a Pan American championship. Then we went to the world championship in 98, another zonal competition in 99. And then, and then I had time for my first Paralympics in 2000. But, but anyway, had the opportunity to, um, for them to invest in me as a younger guy, someone who's still developing my experience but they knew because I was at a school like Illinois that not only had great coaching, but also had great strength and conditioning and all of the other things that I was referring to earlier that put me in a, in a spot. But trust me, man, like when, when they were naming the team, I was named 12th out of 12. And I was just like, uh, how many did they say already? Uh, are they going to say my name? Am I going to get cut? You know? And uh, when they said it, you know, you're just like, you don't want to celebrate because other guys are getting cut. But, but, you know, you wait to get that one alone moment then you're doing your happy dance in the hallway. You know what I mean? When, uh, when you make the team and, and for me, like, think of it as like, uh, from, uh, May of 92 to basically October of, uh, or, you know, September of 97, when they're naming the team, it's like that journey over five years, those ups and downs, like to be able to get a uniform with the best three letters on your chest that you get to represent was a pretty remarkable moment. And if, if I'm correct, you guys won gold in your, your first, you know, bout at the uh, America's Cup, right? Yep, yep, we won gold there. And then, uh, and then, you know, we play a variety of what we call friendly competitions. It's a bit of a misnomer. 
but you know you're basically training all summer to get to whatever the major is and uh and so then we went after that america's cup the next year in 98 we went to sydney australia um for the world championship and and we got gold there as well but i was thinking to myself like what the hell how the hell did i get to sydney australia i was like this is not supposed to happen to people like me or for people like me and are you still doing school at this point or are you full-time yeah yeah, I'm doing, yeah, like a lot of people, they'll take a semester off, you know, like if there's a major competition. Um, but I did uh, my my Sydney Paralympics. I, I stayed enrolled and basically was just doing my studies from afar and whatnot. And the teachers are all pretty, pretty accustomed to having, you know, Paralympic level people in their classrooms and whatnot. But even I remember uh, fast forward to Sydney 2000, it was my last semester of grad school. And they're like, well, well, you know, you can take the semester off and uh, make sure that you finish on a finish on a high note. And but then, you know, you could play for us in the spring. You still got a, another year of eligibility. I was like, no, I'm good. I'm going to go get this Paralympic medal. I'm getting a job. That's what I came here for. So. <laughs> I don't need to finish with my A. Give me give me my my degree and I am out. Well, you know, like looking at it now, I'm like, man, I probably could have used another semester of college. You know what I mean? But at that point, like I was still collecting Social Security disability, getting food stamps and and all of that. I mean, I was a low income, low income guy on, on public assistance. So like the whole concept of getting off public assistance and actually getting a job that sounded pretty exciting to me and, and the fact that I was leaving with my master's degree because um, I basically went back to back bachelor's to master's um, you know I was in the HR program there at Illinois and ended up getting uh, a really good offer coming straight out of school so I was like disability checks or uh, you know graduate degree level checks so like yeah it was an easy decision and so were you playing with a lot of the same guys, you know, during your, your time touring and while you were in school? Was it mostly the, the men you were playing with at Illinois or was it, you know, an entire team made up of people throughout the U.S.? No, it's interesting. Like um, prior to that window, let's say the late 90s, it was mostly guys who were what we would call kind of like our semi-pro, pro division, whatever you want to call our top division in the NWBA used to be called championship division. Now it's called division one. It was mostly guys who'd uh, been at that level. And then, uh, and then in the late nineties, they were beginning to bring in uh, a few people who were uh, college age. And I was one of those people, although I was a little bit of a late bloomer in college um, as far as my age is concerned. And then if, if you look beyond there, it began to create this, uh, this move towards bringing in more collegiate level uh, talent and whatnot. So it was a combination of guys from throughout the nation who we were competing with basically through that period. Um, I have a quick question about, so the Paralympics, right, happens every four years along with the Olympics. I ha- I'm, I'm not going crazy in that assumption, right? So That's correct. You went to the 2000 games and then you went back in 2012. So, what did you were you working and that's why you didn't go to the other Olympics or how did you get back involved for the 2012 one with missing out on the other ones? Yeah, well, in in 2002, we went and got another world championship gold medal. So we, we did back to back golds, uh, 98 in 2002. 
and uh, the program actually won in 94 as well, but I obviously wasn't on that team. Um, so we did well, and a, a combination of things were happening. Uh, you know, I had I had some frustrations with the program and, and uh, some things that were happening within the NWBA. At the same time, in, in 2004 is when I got married, and I was also trying to make strides within my career. So my career started in 01, right after that uh, uh, semester of the Sydney Paralympics. Hold on one second. Let me close the door now. My wife's home. You think at some point I'd get a button where I could just like click it and doors open and close, but like I don't got it like that yet. Um, so, so I'll start that answer over. Uh, for you guys. So the reason why I didn't uh, continue after that world championship gold medal is a, a variety of different reasons. Uh, first, um, I began my career in, in 2001, and I was beginning to make some good strides in my career. I had just made a move uh, between 03 and 04 between companies, but also um to move to Michigan, which is where my wife is from, and she and I got married in 2004. So career, family, and then I had a couple of disagreements with the organization at the same time. And then coincidentally, I ended up uh, having a kidney removed because of, uh, of when I was originally shot, my kidney was damaged and eventually it ended up uh, failing. So I probably was uh, not going to be suitable for the team, but I was beginning to kind of make make a, make a move out of the sport for a period of time to really kind of hunker down on other priorities in my life. And then, coincidentally, uh, when I be when I made another career move from uh, Whirlpool Corporation in Michigan to come to Northeast Ohio and work for the Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company, um, that was in late two thousand and eight, and and you'd be fair to say, like, who the hell was making a career move in late 08? Like the economy was taken, right? Like it was sure. uh, it was out of control. But um, but I made the move, uh, great move to come here and work for Goodyear. But one of the one of the silver linings as well is when I made the move, like I found out that they had a, a local team and I was like, oh, you know, let me just reach out to these guys like I can stay in shape. I haven't played in a while. I love the game. Um, yada, 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 you know, so I dusted old Betsy off, which is my wheelchair, my basketball chairs, like literally spider webs on the freaking thing. Wow. And, uh, and I go out there, man, we go to, go to Quicken Loans Arena. They've got a practice on whatever Tuesday or Thursday night. And, um, and I go out there and I was like, man, I'm pretty damn good still, man. That felt pretty good. Like I was, I was sore for like two weeks, man. Like my shoulders were all seizing up because I hadn't played in a while and, and all of that, but really had a good connection with the guys right off the bat. You know, I'm, I'm exaggerating, but I did play pretty well. And, uh, and so I was like, you know, just kind of low key in my head. I was like, well, you know, maybe start, you know, lifting a little bit more, conditioning a little bit more, get out here, shoot a little bit more. And, uh, and let's see where it goes. And I don't know if you guys know this, but like the old Goodyear building right across the street, they had a place called Goodyear Hall. 
And like, I, I was able to get access to this gym. I was like walking in freaking Hoosiers, man. It was amazing. And, uh, anyway, like I was able to, you know, get whatever access I needed. And, uh, so I'm going over there and just like training like nuts and in, in the late night, early morning, uh, so on and so forth. And long story short, over, you know, like a six month period, I made some really good progress by uh, changing some of my habits. And, um, and then they had a call for uh, the, the Vancouver team, which would have been uh, like, a, you know, another America's Cup uh, type of a competition. And I had to do a little bit of uh, butt kissing with the coach who, uh, who I knew, but, um, but, you know, he hadn't seen me on the scene for a while. You know, he probably felt a little bit weird. Like, why would I bring this guy back? And, and all that. I was like, no, really, man, I've been training, you know, just give me, a, give me an opportunity. Give me a look. Let me come out. And, you know, by the way, it's the least you could do. I kind of, you know, helped the program do pretty well, you know, back in my heyday. And uh, anyway, I got the invite, went out there and I felt like it was, it was deja vu, man. It was for a different reason. When, when I told you guys that I was like hanging on by a thread to get uh, named the 12th out of 12, it was because I was a young guy in 07. And then you like come all the way in uh, 97, I mean, and then you come all the way to uh, 2009 and I'm hanging on by a thread for a completely different reason because now I'm, I'm an older guy and hadn't been around in a while. And I was like, man, this mf better call my name, man. You better call my name. And, uh, and he called me at least. And, and it wasn't down to the 12 right away. They were down selecting, but slowly but surely. And then he was like, man, you better get a new chair. You better get new straps. You better keep working hard. And uh, don't make me uh, don't make me regret, you know, calling your name or whatever. I said, no worries, coach. I got you. And I'll never call you an MF or again. <laughs> uh, this is I'm just curious. Is the coach in, in a wheelchair as well or is he? Uh, it varies. It varies. So there's there's some coaches who are able bodied coaches who are incredibly knowledgeable about the game who invest, you know, great time and effort. And oftentimes, you know, if, if they're not sort of a person with a disability, then, you know, they'll get in the chairs and they'll practice with the team to learn the chair skills and the nuances and, and all of that. And then you have some people who grew up playing wheelchair basketball as they begin to phase out of their career, they'll, they'll move into the coaching ranks as well. And, um, I'd say, whether or not they have a disability is always not always a direct correlation as to, you know, how good of a coach they are, you know, like anything else, being good at it is about being purposeful about your learning and being willing to learn from others and being willing to take feedback and get great people around you. Doesn't matter if you're, if you're walking on your feet or you're pushing on your uh, seat, like uh, it's, it's a matter of who's going to do the work. For sure. And we'll just, Kind of a talking about the nuance of wheelchair basketball. What is the difference between the wheelchair that you're going around in every day versus the one that you're taking on the court with you? You know, if if you were asking me this question in some interview, like in the early '50s, I'd say there's really no difference. They were pushing around in what we call uh, Everest and Jennings uh, wheelchairs, which are basically like hospital chairs. And there wasn't a lot of variation at the time, and there definitely wasn't a lot of innovation at the time. But if you compare someone's everyday chair now, granted, even everyday chairs are vastly improved and uh, more technology and uh, all of that. But the, the sport chairs, or the basketball chairs in this case, 
um, really are much more fine-tuned to help people optimize the function that they have. So uh, a few things that stand out that I'd share with you. Um, in the in the late 90s, one of the things that they began to introduce to sport chairs, which were on some everyday chairs, were anti-tip bars. So, you know, if you were to watch film from the early 90s, you'd see guys like freaking flying all over the place. Either, either they were falling back in their chair or they weren't strapped in really well. So they were like, you know, have one of these collisions and the guy's like flying out of the mm-hmm. chair. Whereas in the, in the late 90s, they introduced these anti-tip bars, which is either like a fifth wheel that comes out in the back or a fifth and sixth wheel that comes out in the back. If it's a fifth wheel, it's basically in between the, the distance of the rear two wheels. If it's a fifth and sixth wheel, they're very close to the left and right wheel in the rear. But what, what the fifth and sixth wheel does is it allows you to change your center of gravity in the chair. And by moving your center of gravity forward in the chair, um, basically your seating position, right? So you're basically moving the, the, the seat forward in the chair over the axle. What that does is it just creates so much more responsiveness. So like if you have a little bit of hip uh, strength, if you have leg strength, you know, as someone with an incomplete injury might have a little bit of leg strength. So like if you're just flexing those muscles a little bit in one of those directions, the chair is just much more responsive to uh, whatever little bit of function you do have. And then you see some guys who are like a below the knee amputee and the things that they can do in their chairs are just, you know, unbelievable because of the amount of muscle they have mm-hmm. uh, in their legs still. Um, the other thing that, um, that we do with the chairs is the amount of camber that's in the chair. And basically that's like the angle of the wheels. So a lot of you have seen people in a, in a sport chair um, and that angle on the wheels is, is called camber. So your spinning radius and again, your maneuverability are impacted by the amount of camber that you have on the wheels. And then the, the next advancement that, that happened during that same time period is strapping. So it wasn't like strapping was only introduced at that time, but introducing technology from other sports and other activities bringing those types of straps into the game of wheelchair ball. Um, so I don't remember the exact time, but it was probably right around the early 2000s where these click straps from um, snow, uh, when people go snowboarding, these click straps that would go over the boots, they were then introduced to be sort of clamped onto the chair and you can really just then cinch yourself into the chairs as tight as possible. And you get one at the hips, one at the knees, and maybe one at the feet. And the whole idea being with all the other technological changes that I mentioned, uh, when you put these straps on, it really helps people become one with the chair. So you're, you're sort of part of the chair. So in this case, when, when you have one of these collisions uh, and you go falling over, like the chair stays attached to you. Um, but like the speed of the game, the pace of the game, the tactics and maneuverability of the game, all of those things have changed uh, significantly. And there's a variety of wheelchair manufacturers in the U S several of them sponsors of the NWBA who, uh, who are doing amazing work to continue to make some of those tweaks to the technology so that we can put as athletic of a product out on the court for our fans as possible. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I, 
really had no idea how much went, you know, the thought and the engineering behind these athletic wheelchairs. And have you seen just since your experience, you know, starting back in the late 90s, um, even to 2012, how was the evolution of the chair and the game, um, you know, in your experience? Well, I, I think a bigger transition happened like right at that time. Um, I wasn't necessarily aware that it was happening and that, you know, these guys before me were pushing around in freaking Sherman tanks, but they were. And, uh, and I think, you know, since then, it's been probably a little more incremental. I guess one of the other things that the uh, design engineers are always working on and contemplating is like, what, what metal you select? Like, how do you find light enough weight metal that is still durable enough to, to take the contact. So, um, Quinn, I know you've had a chance to, to see wheel, wheelchair basketball. Um, but for those people who, who haven't had a chance to see it, like one of the ways that I describe it is like a perfect combination. Like it's one part, uh, sort of, uh, brute force. Um, and then it's one other part finesse and how you're sort of alternating almost instinctively throughout the game where you have one moment where it's just finesse and another moment where it's brute force, but like with this collision device that is a wheelchair, right? So like, obviously you guys could say, well, basketball's force and finesse anyway, right? So like if you've got Shaq versus MJ, they're like two completely different talents, but they're both phenomenal talents, right? In a wheelchair basketball, you've got the aspect which is like just pure banging and every person can do it versus the finesse. Like think of think of going like Mach 5 in a wheelchair and just kind of shooting a finger roll off of, uh, off of the glass, you know, while you're going full speed. Most people probably can't um, necessarily imagine that, um, but... I promise you, first of all, you won't be able to go Mach 5, but, you know, if we if we pushed you Mach 5 and then you uh, you tried to finger roll a layup, like, it's it's an amazing sort of combination to, to think about that. And I think most people are blown away um, when I talk with them, right? Like, I'm always inviting people out or trying to get them to come and experience a wheelchair ball. And uh, there's usually a reaction such as the following – uh, afterwards in some, some form or fashion, it's like this, you know, well, I don't, I don't really know what I was expecting, but that was more than it. And, and to me, it's like not an insult, like, Oh, you guys are surprisingly, you know, athletic. It, it's not like that. It's just like that, you know, I didn't know what to expect with wheelchair basketball. Like I had a negative connotation of it. I didn't think disability in sport or wheelchair in sport go together and and most people when they come out like they're blown away and then the next question is like well how do we see more you know and and that's that's our job to figure out how to how to give them more of it and uh and to make it easy for them to access it well in the the see more of it do you think working with the nwba now and and going to olympics do you think the olympics is the best way for people to watch wheelchair basketball or do you think there are other avenues that could be explored to really promote it i think um i think historically i would have agreed with you that um when when you come around to that window of the paralympics there there's so many eyeballs who are tuned in for that um finite period of time i'd say that the 
world does much better than the U.S. does on televising it. So even Sydney 2000, like they were broadcasting every game sort of nationwide. And and then when I was in London in 2012, there were huge strides, you know, as far as the Paralympic movement and, and things like that. And just the amount of uh, inclusion, if you will, that was on display in London and the way that Paralympians were treated identical to uh, Olympians. It was, it was amazing to, um, to experience. I'd say, you know, NBC in the U S has, um, has yet to kind of pick up on the same way that other nations have the importance of showing it. And so it's like NBC rightfully so they're like well the analytics say that we're only going to get such and such viewership in order to uh you know put this on whereas other countries that say well i'm not going to worry about analytics i'm going to put it on and that's going to influence the change um so not uh not necessarily it's chicken uh, uh or the egg right like in in the case of these other countries they do it because it's the right thing and they want to provoke change Whereas, whereas here it's all about ratings, right? And if you can't prove that the ratings are going to pan out, you're going to go and make money in some other way. And so, like, as a business person, I get that, while at the same time, as a person who's trying to advance the cause of including people with disabilities, I'm like, come on, NBC, how about, how about you take a calculated risk and, and you do a better job? Well, are there... On that, this is just a follow-up question. Are there professional leagues in other countries that are that is that what is being televised? Well, when, as it relates to to my prior response, that has more to do with viewership of the Paralympic Games okay. themselves. Um, but there are there are um, professional leagues in other countries. So, like if if you were to go to Spain or Turkey or Germany. France uh, and some other places, they'll have their premier league of wheelchair basketball. They'll have a B division and, and all of that. And they've done a better job in those smaller geographies of getting a manageable number of teams to be their top division, putting on a great schedule, great organization and, and so on and so forth. So they, they do pretty well. We have a lot, we have a long way to go as it relates to that. Uh, and so that's sort of uh, self-criticism, something that um, we could work on. But what I think is different in my response, so like based on where we are today versus, you know, uh, several years back, I think with uh, technology being what it is, Twitch, uh, Twitter, Facebook, and all of that, the, the amount of uh, access to um, publishing a game is, is so much easier to do. So I think more grassroots uh, use of technology is making the game more visible to more people, which is great because who knows how many times that it just shows up on someone's feed and you have a kid or an adult with a disability who didn't necessarily know that the game existed before. And now there's the potential for them to see that it's there and, you know, come to our website and then find a way to get involved in the game. So I think technology is enabling a lot more awareness uh, which I guess is a statement of the obvious, but still needs to be said. Sure. And how is your role in the company? How are you, you know, constantly trying to push it further? Are you, do you see yourself incorporating all this technology that you're talking about? Or are you more, you know, meeting with people and just, you know, trying to 
see where you can take you know the the NWBA? I think it's I think it's a, a combination of things. I, I think one of our biggest jobs as as a, a national office is to help our member organizations understand what tools they can use and, and you know hopefully give them access to tools and whatnot. Um, so we're trying to shift the paradigm and, and create more of that value proposition and and not necessarily just give certain things, but to teach our organization how to do certain things. And so we're we're in a bit of a sort of two-way communication process. What do you guys need more of? And then how do we prioritize what we're able to put out and and help them do that? So I think I see I think that's one. And then another way to just drive great amplification of our message and the fact that our sport exists is through partners. So, you know, we've got a a great relationship with Toyota. We've got a great relationship with Nike and, uh, and we have relationships with other great organizations um, as well. And when we can work on an event and engagement and activity, whatever the case might be that they can put out on their social and that we're putting out on our social or that they're putting out in other channels. The fact is that we're raising awareness of the sport when we do that. And of course we're raising awareness of their, their support of people with disabilities and adaptive sports, the Paralympic movement and things like that. So it's a win-win, but our intent in these things is to build as much awareness as we possibly can, because, you know, I gave you guys my, my a little bit of my story earlier. And the truth is like, of course, I love my medals. Of course, I love, you know, the fact that I got to travel the world and do the things that I did. But like uh, the game changed my life. It changed my life's trajectory. So why do I want to make sure that we're getting the sport out there and in front of more people? It's because there's other people who need it, other people who don't know that they can be just as successful, you know, with their disability as potentially if they grew up without one. Or that a little kid with a disability who was who was born uh, with with a disability, that they feel that they have just as much much right to a successful path as the next person. So we know that by participating in wheelchair basketball, you're going to have better relationships, you're going to have better grades, you're going to have a better career. And we also know that by participating in wheelchair basketball, you're going to have a crap ton of fun and, uh, and meet great people, too. So so that's why we want to get the message out there. I mean, of course, like we want to we want to be a profitable, you know, financially stable organization and all of that. But it's not because we're taking that money and pumping it into salaries and other things like that. We're a small nonprofit organization that just wants to put as much programming as we can put out there in order to help you know, the next person find their path and find their potential. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. I know, um, just that when you're talking about sponsors, I, I, it got my mind going and, you know, obviously you're a basketball. You got, you got, you've got some sponsor ideas for me. Well, <laughs> um, well, I was just thinking, cause you know how the WNBA has been, has blown up because all these NBA players and same thing with the women's soccer, like, because all these men and the and the NBA players are like when they were in the bubble they wore the WNBA sweatshirts to the games and all that and I think it puts such a spotlight on it because it's the it's the NBA players right it's the pinnacle and then the WNBA has gotten pretty popular and so like that like I could definitely see something like that because people don't know like we were talking about what 
what wheelchair basketball is, and then if they saw it, there'd definitely be an interest, hundred percent. Yeah, I think I think that's um, I think there's two things. I I think when when people show up to women's soccer and women's basketball, they're seeing a great product uh, that you know these these athletes are training and um, and they're turning themselves into elite talent, which which they are. And and when you see people who are putting in just as much time and effort to hone their craft, whether we're talking about sport or anything else in life, like that's the sort of thing you want to you want to get behind. And one of the things I really love about NBA players support of the WNBA is it's something as simple as they see basketball as basketball. And, um, you know, it's, it's kind of hard when you think about a lot of NBA talent, right? Like they've got like these three layers of insulation around them where that are, they're just impenetrable to try to connect with some of these athletes and, uh, and whatnot. But I really do agree with you that the more we get some of these people exposed to the sport, the more that they can play a role of being a champion, of of saying, listen, you know, wheelchair basketball is a great sport. These athletes are phenomenal talents and and you should give it a you should give it a look or give it a try or, or whatever the case might be. Um, but you know, those are allies, right? And at the end of the day, if you can get some allies who've got a great platform, then it's gonna do the same thing that I said the sponsors are gonna do, right? They're gonna help amplify the message. They're going to get more eyeballs on it. And what's the benefit of that? Not just numbers, right, of viewership and all that, but that viewership is going to lead to converting people who aren't otherwise participating to get them involved. And why do we want to do that? It's for the same same reason I mentioned earlier. Will, you are arguably the, the CEO of one of the probably the toughest points in history. I mean, navigating the current social climate with the pandemic. Uh, how has that been for you guys, and how have you been, you know, dealing with this current situation? I'd say uh, I'd say there's sort of like two two sides of the coin. Um, you know, on on one hand. Being a 71-year-old organization, which the National Wheelchair Basketball Association is, we've we've been through some ups and downs, and we're inherently made up of people who are resilient and and understand how to work through whether that be trauma or drama. Either way, we've we've been through the ringer, and and you know I'm no exception to that. Um, at the same time, we've had significantly uh, negatively impacted revenue. And, uh, and, you know, that puts us at a very clear risk as, as an organization to, um, to find a way to, to deal with that because, you know, no one wants to be associated with a 71 year organization going under, right? Like I certainly didn't sign up to do this job to, to allow the organization to be at risk, but, but I feel really proud of the work that we've done over the last 18 to 24 months to, um, to make sure that we've got a lot of the fundamentals in place to kind of weather this storm. But but make make no mistake about it, man. Like every day I'm waking up, it's to figure out ways to bring in more revenue to make sure that we can come out of this on the other end stronger than we went into it. Um, 
but it, it takes great partners, you know, so I, I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, Toyota, they've been, they've been a great partner with us through this Nike and the challenge athletes foundation, help us come up with some virtual training uh, programs, uh, as well called the training zone. And, um, and the USOPC, United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee, they've been incredible uh, for the NWBA from the perspective of um, helping us understand the situation we're in, helping us navigate it, and providing some support. Um, because we're not just you know the the grassroots programs across the country; we're also accountable to field the team for uh, Tokyo. So, because we do both of those things, that creates our relationship to the USOPC. And they've wrapped their arms around us and, and have uh, made us better throughout this period. Wow. And so you guys are still planning on heading to Tokyo? Uh, yeah. So so basically they delayed it by one year. Sure. Uh, they made that decision earlier. I think uh, everyone's waiting with bated breath, hoping, you know, that, you know, the various vaccines that are uh, – soon to get emergency use authorization um, that they can hit the market quickly and uh, create confidence that we can move forward. I mean, there's, there's a ton on the line uh, relative to Tokyo, not, not the least of which is, you know, like the rights holders and the sponsors, but more importantly than that, from, from my personal perspective is the fact that you've got athletes who were training for four years now deferring other priorities in their life to train for a fifth. And I'd argue that if we are able to pull Tokyo off and, and go there and, and compete, it's going to be one of the emotional, most emotional Paralympics and Olympics uh, in history. Yeah. Well, I think hopefully there will be able to be fans there. But even if there aren't fans there, I, it's still going to be incredible to watch because, like you said, you have all these athletes training and putting their lives on hold to go do this. And I think, I think it will be one of the best spectacles because I mean, the Olympics and the Paralympics are amazing to watch anyway, but then you put this whole, you put a pandemic behind us and that I think I agree with you. I think it will be crazy to watch. Well, and, and they're not, they're not just putting their lives on hold. Like they're also putting their lives on the line to, to still find a way to train and, and prepare. And you know how it is when the when the Olympics come on. And again, uh, you see it more in the Olympics and the Paralympics just because you see more of them. But but the vignettes uh, that, that they talk about and they say, you know, so-and-so athlete, you know, they went through all of this stuff in order to get here and compete. And it's like this, this tugging at your heartstring uh, story. And uh, there's going to be so many more of those people who've experienced loss and uh, and all of that, and I'm I'm hopeful that there can be some Paralympian vignettes as well to talk about their journey to the games, which are um, you know without exception, there's usually some type of traumatic event uh, that that was experienced on that journey to uh, to achieve excellence. Absolutely, yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to hearing that, and I hope that the the Paralympics gets you know the spotlight that it's it deserves, and so. Moving forward, you know, you guys, you, you'll weather the storm of COVID, um, hopefully, and uh, where, do you, where do you personally want to take the NWBA? Uh, you know, with your time left as CEO, what, what would, you know, your five, maybe ten year vision be for the association? Yeah, the, the, the first thing is that we've got a 
more engaged and satisfied current group of members. So what would bring that about is by making sure that we're listening to what their needs are and that we're providing tools and resources to make these grassroots programs more sustainable tomorrow than they are today. So whether that's giving them fundraising tools, giving them coaching tools, helping them understand how to run a small nonprofit. Like we're, we're much more than a sport organization. We're like 50% sport, 50% nonprofit. So if you're a great coach out there in the field running a program, that doesn't mean you're great at running a nonprofit. And if you're great at running a nonprofit out there in the field, it doesn't mean that you're going to be great at, you know, developing your talent. So we need to figure out a way to continue to help them become great at doing both of those things. Um, that's number one. And then um, the, the next most important thing for me beyond engaging the current audience is figuring out how we can expand and, you know, make the sport more well-known and making the pathways for people to come into the sport easier and making people's progression through the sport uh, easier. And, and what that leads to, so like that's sort of a, a leading activity, right? But an outcome of that should be sustained international excellence. So when you think about the benefit of bringing more talent into the pipeline, that creates competition. Uh, that elevates the, the level of play. And what that should do is give us, I mean, and first of all, we've, we've got the winningest record internationally, you know, in the history of the game. So let's not forget that. But we want to be on the podium every single event. And we want to be on the top of the podium every single event. So what are the things we need to do at the foundational level and at the pathway level in order to increase those opportunities to do that. And, and the last thing I'd say is, well, what does that take? It, it takes great partnerships, great sponsorships, and, and being able to be a good partner to other organizations where they want to work with us in order to do that. So those would be the high level. And obviously, you know, I'd, I'd love to love to have, you know, a, a great league that could be on television that um, could become the benchmark around the world. But we have a few other things to get in order before we get there. For sure. And well, this takes us pretty much to the hour mark. Yeah. Hey.